1: takes their seats, find, find their places. We welcome you this morning if you're a first-time visitor or online if you're a first-time watcher. Uh, we are in the middle of a—well, not in the middle. That's going to be in about three, two months. But we are at the start of a series where we feel obligated as Christian citizens To be instant in season and out of season, at any moment, at any time, when anyone then asks us to give a reasoned response, to give evidence for the hope that we have in us. And this morning, it's the third of those uh, messages. The first was God not only exists, He not only is, but He was eternally and he will be eternally to come and last week to frame everything in the context of why we believe that we believe that there are absolute truths that are revealed in God's word and through his holy spirit as we interpret it and those absolute truths fly in the face of relativism today and one of those absolute truths is that Jesus Christ the son of God is the way the truth And And this morning we come to, as you can see in in the sermon, the title of the sermon is There is Only One Right View, and it's very unpopular today for people to say that, to believe that we have an exclusive truth that we hold, and it's the only right way to look at things. Wow. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing to you, and as they are received, and as we reflect on your word, the power of your conviction, the insight that you give our minds to understand, will bring us to a point where we make decisions for you today that can change not only time, but have eternal consequences. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. It's hard to believe, but 31 years ago to me seems like almost yesterday. Most of you know that I was in Desert Storm. I was in Saudi Arabia camping out in a place just east of uh, a, um, an encampment called King Collin Military City, about 30 miles east of that. And I was with the 383rd Quartermaster Battalion out of El Paso, Texas. We had millions of gallons of jet A fuel and diesel fuel on the ground and fuel bladders just outside my bunker. And from just about every day, we ran convoys out to our units. We were wholesale. They were retail. We took the fuel to the center sector to Seventh Court, all of the units there in the middle of the battlefield. And pretty much, we had pushed Saddam Hussein's forces back, and we, they were in retreat— And we were delivering fuel to Kuwait. Remember, that was the cause of the whole war. And the commander was not able to go, battalion commander, and the executive officer was not able to lead the convoy. And because I had been an artilleryman, and they believed that I knew how to read a map and a compass, they trusted me then to take the convoy of about 25,000 gallon tankers through the desert to Kuwait. They gave me a map. They said, it's no problem. We've done it two or three times ourselves. The thing is, there were a couple of rules. Number one, we went through the desert, through a desert that had been mined by the, by the Iraqis, and it had been plowed by engineers with their, um, their ground scrapers, their bulldozers. One rule was this, do not leave the path, because if you leave the path, you don't know. There's still mines out there. They'd gone through with minesweepers. And the second rule is uh get there okay Okay. get the get the fuel on time no problem except there were no uh benchmarks it it was flat there weren't any hills there weren't any any uh way anything that i could see on the ground out there that indicated direction except the compass we were on the we were on the uh the, the plowed pathway and no problem we would come to one juncture and there'd be a little wooden stake that had been driven in there by the engineers and you knew which way to go. Until we came to a fork in the road where there was no sign and it wasn't on the map. Now You stop and think about that. Uh, Had to make a decision which way to go. We were in the middle of enemy territory. Okay, so I, I, I was in the lead of the convoy. I stopped, and I thought, which way do I go? It's not on the map. There are no, there are no visible signs, topographical signs out, out there for me to follow. And if I take the wrong way, by the time I discover it, guess what? I can't turn around and go back because I couldn't leave the road. So what do you do? Well, you see, I was the chaplain of the unit. And everybody was watching me as leader of the convoy. And so I did what a chaplain should do and what we all should do. What do you think I did? I prayed. I prayed. Though I walk or though I drive through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because thy thy rod and thy staff, they will not only comfort me, but they will guide me. I wasn't really that familiar with this text, but it certainly applies. I mean, uh, from Isaiah 58, too. I wish that I had uh, known of it at that time. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. So I prayed. And then what do you do? You pray and you take as much information that you have and you make an informed decision and then you do not falter. You do what? You forge ahead. And fortunately, the Lord enabled me to make the right decision. And I cannot tell you a single thing about the journey beyond that point. I don't remember it. I just know that we got there. The good news this morning is that we do have a map as Christians. And it's very definitive. It's God's holy word. It is the map for the roadway of life. There is one right way when we come to the fork, and he helps us to discern what that right way is. The good news about it is, though there are minefields all around us, we can turn around if we take the wrong way. It's a thing called repentance, and God enables us to do that. And we know this, that even when we make mistakes, even when we take the wrong road, God does what? He protects and guides us, and he gives us a second chance. Judah was at such a crossroad about 3,000 years ago in 700 BC. You know from your study of the book of Isaiah that Hezekiah was the king. Isaiah had already prophesied to Judah that they were going to go into captivity, or the illusion was that they would go into captivity. He, this was going to happen about 110 years after Isaiah prophesies at this time and as he speaks in Isaiah 45. And he, twice Isaiah has already prophesied that Babylonia, the, one, the, the kingdom that has, is going to take them captive, is also going to be defeated and they are going to be judged by God. And there is going to arise a great king that is going to deliver them, and it is not going to be a Judean king, it's not going to be an Israelite king, it's not going to be a king out of the house of David, it will be a foreigner by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus Second, Cyrus the Great, he hasn't even been born. It will be a hundred years hence before he is born of Cambyses, who is a minor vassal king in western Persia. And a small kingdom there, almost unknown to history. And this Cyrus will arise and become the founder of the Achaemenid dynasty and the great Persian empire. God announces then, at the end of the 44th chapter of Isaiah, that he has chosen Cyrus as his divine instrument. He says there in the very last verse, It is I who says to Cyrus, He is my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Now this of course is prophecy about what is going to happen after the Babylonian captivity and then he announces God's role in what happens with Cyrus in the future in Isaiah 45 Basically, in that chapter, God will call Cyrus as king, and God will anoint him and give him a title of honor. And it's going to be for the sake of his people, that is, for his people and his servant, Jacob. And he's going to enable Cyrus, then, to destroy and to conquer all of the enemies and to free Judah to return. And then in chapters 46 through 48, Isaiah goes on and describes what is going to happen to Babylon. Babylon prophesies the destruction the fulfillment of this prophecy as you well know if your biblical scholars begins in 559 BC when Cyrus became king of Anshan, that small province in western Persia and over the next 20 years he conquered not only the Medes but the Lydian Empire in Turkey and then the Babylonians themselves and his empire stretched from Asia Minor almost to Europe to India and from Palestine to the Caspian and the Black Seas. It was the largest empire west of India and China that had ever existed. And in 538 BC, Cyrus fulfilled that prophecy, of course, which is chronicled literally in 2 Chronicles 36, where he decrees that Judah is to return and they are to rebuild the temple. Today's passage, God announces himself to Cyrus even before he is born, as his Lord and as his patron. We're not going to stand this morning. It's a couple of verses in Isaiah 45, 5 through 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. You see, they're at a crossroads at this time because there is a very real threat that all of what had been Israel will return to paganism. Abraham's own roots were steeped in paganism, if you will remember, because Joshua, as he stands before the people of Israel before they then before he dies and before and as he leaves his legacy with them, he reminds them that. That Abraham's family with Terah had been the worshipers of other gods in the river, beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates River. Probably this means that they worshiped the god of Ur, the chief god of Ur, which was the moon god Sin. And you see what's possibly could happen at this point. They're right on the verge of even Judah then returning to this kind of paganism. Judah was surrounded by idolatrous nations with pagan gods to the east, Moloch and Chemosh, and from Babylon, Marduk and Bel. To the south, Osiris and Isis and Reh and Seth and Anubis and Horus. To the west, Baal and Ashtoreth and Dagon. And to the north, Hadad and Shamaim. They were surrounded by not only alien nations, but pagan gods. And the Assyrians, of course, had taken Israel. They had capitulated to idolatry and to paganism. And even then, when the kings of, of Judah that were the good kings, invited the former remnants of the Israelite tribes to come and worship Jehovah, they refused to do so. Only Judah and Benjamin remained faithful. I mean, you look at Hezekiah. He was preceded by an idolatrous king, his dad Ahaz, and he was succeeded by one of the most idolatrous kings in Judean history, Manasseh, and then his son, Ammon. So there was a a very real threat that they could fall prey to paganism again. And at this point, God announces himself then to the coming Cyrus and he declares his supreme power in the first four verses that just preceded what we read. He, said, he basically says, I'm the Lord of all nations. You see, what I can do is I can call a pagan king, a foreign king, and I can anoint him. Because you see, he is mine as well. And I will use him then to defeat the nations around him. I am powerful. I will subdue through him all the nations and kings that stand in the way. I will shatter their strongholds. And I will deliver the wealth of all these nations to Cyrus. I am a deliverer, he says in these verses, because I'm going to deliver my servant Jacob. He is my chosen one. Even though he is weak and on the edge of obliteration, I will restore him and I will vindicate his faithfulness in me as a witness to the nations. And then he speaks about his sovereignty the passage after what we read verses 7 through 25 when you read that carefully you see a number of characteristics that describe this Jehovah God almighty the lord elohim if you read it carefully it gives us a world view of what we call theism what is described there in those verses very briefly he describes himself as the one and only god that is monotheism he is the creator of everything he is the sustainer who is providentially in control he has foreknowledge he knows what is going to unfold in history omniscience he has he is the god of personal presence i am not just a force i am not a pagan idol i am the god almighty who is present with you personally i am redeemer who cares and delivers i am savior not just of my son jacob But I am Savior who can redeem all nations, even through a pagan king. I am eternal. I have existed from before time, and I will continue to exist after time. I am holy. I am righteous. I am. I am. I am the Lord. There is no other. I rely on nobody and nothing. Isaiah 45 is probably one of the best examples... Of the definitive worldview that we call theism. The Bible describes this theistic worldview very clearly there. And I want to talk about it this morning because it is the only right view. There are many worldviews out there, but it is, the Bible says, the only right view. What is a worldview? Well, it's the way we look at things. And it's very important as we go into the rest of this series in apologetics to understand how Christians view the world. Now, this is a theistic worldview, and I'll talk to that in just a moment. But what is a worldview? It's a conceptual framework that we have, whether we're conscious of it or unconscious of it, where we fit everything that we believe, and it helps us to interpret reality as we see the things around us. It's sort of like a a built-in lens, or if you will, a grid that filters the information that barrages us and the arguments that people have against us and it leads us to make certain conclusions about reality. We all have a worldview, whether we realize it or not. The elements of a classic worldview described by theologians has about five elements. First of all, it has a view about God. Is there God or is there not God? This is theological. And even people who say there is no God, they have a theology they have a doctrine of God. They believe there is no God. So it says something about what you think about God. It it speaks to ultimate reality. That is the physical world, but not just the physical world, the world that is beside, meta, on the side of the physical. And the word for that in lofty terms is metaphysics. So it has a View of reality. It also has a view of knowledge. How do we learn and how do we understand? In the Western society for the last couple of centuries, the emphasis has been on rationalism and reason, but there's also feeling, intuition, the other ways of understanding and knowing things. And it also has a view of morality. What is your guide for moral behavior and ethics? How do we behave? In a worldview, finally, as a view of humanity. That is, anthropology. What about the nature of humans, human culture, and their history? And you put all of these together, and and you have a lens through which you look at reality. The theistic worldview is pretty clear from Scripture. Let me describe it. You heard part of it this morning from, from our friends over here, the puppets. God is eternal. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. Two of the omnis. God is a free person. He's entirely free. He depends on no one else. God is bodiless. He sent his only begotten son who assumed a body incarnately, and yes, he had a body. But God himself, the Father, is bodiless, and so is the Holy Spirit. His son still retains his incarnational body and will return someday in all of his glory. And that body will reflect the glory of the Father himself but god is bodiless that means that he can be omnipresent anywhere everywhere all at one time he is creator and not only did he make but he sustains the universe he's involved in it he's perfectly good and he's the force he is the source of all moral obligation the center of ethics focuses on his character he is ultimate reality In other words, he is the being that explains everything else. And he is the self perpetuating person, the self perpetuating being who has existed, who exists, and who will exist forever independently from anyone or anything. And, folks, that is a biblical worldview that is accurate, not only accurate, but it is the only right view. There are other competing views. The others that would not look at reality that way through their worldview. One of those you're familiar with, deism, was very popular in the 18th century, and especially in America, and with some of our founding fathers. What does deism say? Deism says that God created the world, and most of you know that deists say then he is not involved. He basically stepped back. You see... The universe runs by natural law, and this is sustained by them and not by God. God is supernatural. He is above nature, super, super, above nature, but he's not involved in it. He does not perform miracles. This worldview was held, of course, by Thomas Jefferson, by Thomas Paine in the Revolution. Some say Benjamin Franklin, but that's debatable, and some say George Washington, and I think that's absolutely wrong. This view was held by the French philosophers of the French Revolution, before the French Revolution, Voltaire, Rousseau, and others. There's a second worldview that competes against theism. It is what would be called finite Godism. Well, I think that explains it. It's like theism in as much as they believe that God is above the universe. God created the universe and he works in it, but God is finite, he's not infinite. God is limited in his power and his nature. He cannot do miracles. You see, for the finite goddess, this makes the problem of evil and suffering very simple to explain. Yes, we have evil and suffering around us. God created a good world, but he's not capable of stopping evil and suffering. Some finite goddess say he's personal God. Others say, no, he's just a force. Some say that he has a singular identity. Some say, no, his identity is divided between himself and nature. Some say only God is eternal. Some finite goddess say no, matter is eternal as well. H.G. Wells held a finite goddess theology. You might be familiar with a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Rabbi Harold Kushner uses this kind of theology to put forth his his ideas about why why those things happen, why people suffer. A third worldview that competes with theism is pantheism. God is identical with the world. He does not transcend nature. He's not in the world. He is the world. God is the world and the world is God. But pantheists typically don't speak of God as God. They usually use the term it. It is everything and everything is it. There way of understanding and learning isn't so much through rationalism or even intuition. It's more a mystical understanding of the universe, not known through rational thinking. You see, with a pantheist, everything, creation, and all that goes along with it flows from the being of God, including evil, and that explains evil and suffering. This is held by Sikhs, by Confucianists, by Taoists, and some Hindus. The next worldview that competes with theism is panentheism. Not pantheism, but panentheism. And the word in there is very important. God is in the world. He's sort of like the soul or the mind of the universe. The world is God's body, and God is the world's soul or mind. In this worldview, God is bipolar and I'm not talking in psychological terms. God is bipolar because, you see, he has an actual being in the world, but he has a potential being outside the cosmos. And so the world was not created from nothing. What God in his actuality did, if this makes any sense, is he went to his potentiality, and he brought then substance in to make the world. In this view, God is in process. God is changing. God is growing. He's growing in his perfections. Unfortunately, once again, God is limited. He cannot defeat evil completely, but with the help of humankind, he can overcome some evil to a certain point. This has become popular in some Christian circles. It is called process theology. It was popular with the Gnostics and with some Buddhists today and some Hindus There is another worldview, a fifth worldview that competes with theism. And, of course, it's obvious, polytheism. Polytheism is there are many gods. There's a pantheon of gods. And and these gods may represent forces of nature. They may represent ancestral principles. Some of these gods are personal. Some of them are forces. Some of them are pantheistic. Some of them are are panentheistic. And, of course, this was the world in which jesus lived all of these gods that we described around judah were part of a polytheistic pantheon of sorts today taoists and shintoists many chinese and african folk religions are polytheistic and most hindus frankly are polytheistic And, of course, neo-paganism is polytheistic. There is another worldview that challenges theism, and this is naturalism. All is matter. Nothing else exists. Nothing matters but matter. You see, the universe is a closed system. Everything that occurs within the universe is a result of natural causes, and it is like a deterministic machine You see, we're governed by natural laws. And in in this worldview, human behavior is dictated by the laws of nature. And it has no sense of spirituality. There is no God, nor soul, no immortality, no heaven, no salvation. There isn't such a thing really as sin. And in fact, there is no such thing as human free will. What we do is virtually predetermined by the mechanistic laws of nature. This was held, as you might expect, by Charles Darwin by the philosopher at the beginning of the 20th century, John Dewey, and by the astronomer, Carl Sagan. And, of course, you know what this leads to. It leads to another worldview that challenges theism, atheism, atheism. There is no God, either in this world or beyond it. You see, this is really derived from naturalism, isn't it? All that matters is matter. Traditional atheists like jean Paul Sartre said, God never exists, there never has been a God. Friedrich Nietzsche had a different view. He said, yes, there was a God, but it's the God that we invented in our own minds for our own needs. There are even some atheists that said God did exist, but he died at the crucifixion. There are different views of atheism. This is held by many philosophers today, scientists today, and by virtually all secular humanists. In fact, basic Buddhism is actually atheistic. There is no personal God, there is no personal soul. We simply are bits of karma that will be reincarnated and the goal is extinction and nirvana. However, that's a little misleading because many folk Buddhist religions do incorporate natural and ancestral spirits in their worship. And then there are a couple of other worldviews. There, of course, is agnosticism. Uncertain about whether God exists, there are two types. The weak form of agnosticism says that we do not know whether God exists, but he might. And the strong form of agnosticism says, not only do we not know, but we cannot know. It is impossible. Hume, the Scottish philosopher of the uh, 18th century, was an experiential agnostic. He said, we can't know because you can't prove it through the experience of science and math. And that's what we use to prove reality. Immanuel Kant was a rational agnostic. Remember I said last week, he said, it is impossible for you to know anything out of yourself outside of yourself through the power of reason. And then there's a final worldview that we talked about last week that competes against theism, and that is relativism, the relativism of postmodernity. They say either there is no normative truth, or if there is, it cannot be determined. Popular relativism would be very positive. It would say, well, you see, everybody's view has merit, so we ought to consider everybody's view. A utilitarian or practical view of relativism would say something like this. You see, our values are socially constructed, and only the ones that work will survive. There's a bit of Darwinianism in that. And there's a skeptical kind of relativism that leads to nihilism. And it says that we cannot be certain about anything. There is no universal standard. There is no God or gods that determine right or wrong. Moral statements themselves are simply constructs from society. There is no truth. There is no grand narrative. So let's conclude with this. We've laid the basis for our future discussions as we look at the Christian worldview in the coming weeks. How does the Christian worldview differ from all of these others? Well, first of all, it is theistic. Remember the definition I gave of theistic worldview a few moments ago. It's based on revelation first, and then it is proved also through science and philosophy, as we will discover in the next few weeks. It's based on logic, the logic of a theistic worldview. Relativism, as we said last week, is incoherent relativism in fact implodes upon itself for the reasons I gave last week you stop and think about it all worldviews are mutually exclusive each one of these that I described is either true or it's not and if it's true all of the others are wrong so those 10 worldviews including theism if one is right the others are wrong and if the theistic worldview is right the others are wrong and we believe that is the case that there is only one right view. And the basic claim of theism is this. There is one God. He is supernatural and sovereign with all the omnis that go along with it, and there is no other. This is what is described in Isaiah 45. In the New Testament, it is given in Revelation and chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed, and they were created. This is the theistic worldview. It is held not only by us, but it's also held by Muslims and by Jews. Theism. Theism. What we're talking about in the next few weeks is the Christian worldview built on top of that. And there's some distinctive elements of it. First, the Trinity. And that is what we will talk about next week. Which for many is logically incoherent, but it is biblical, it is true, it defines the nature of God. There is Christ and his person and his work and his uniqueness and his deity. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together so this is the focus on the Christ whom the father sent and through whom everything is created distinctive christian worldview the distinctive world christian worldview believes in the holy spirit and the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. It has a distinctive view of salvation and the results. It has the church, which is distinctive. And then finally, an end times theology that is distinctive. Now what is advantageous about this Christian worldview that we will be looking at over the next few weeks? Well, first of all, it is true because of biblical revelation. Not only that, it gives us certain truth. Based on revelation but also unfolding through the evidence of science and the reason of philosophy there is certainty in what we will be speaking about it provides a remedy a remedy to what the human condition and that is sin and suffering and death it is the most influential worldview in all of history over moral codes It improves ethics and the standards of life. It fosters human dignity and freedom, and as we said two weeks ago, civility and industry and progress. But most of all, it answers life's ultimate questions. It gives hope and encouragement for the future, and it offers salvation and eternal life to those who come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Over the next few weeks... We will be using this theistic worldview, in particular Christian worldview, and we will be addressing all of the questions and the challenges that people have against not just that worldview, but the person of God. So we come to the final point. This morning, you may be standing at a crossroad. If you're watching, you may be standing at a crossroad, like you're in the middle of a desert and you do not know which way to go. It may be about eternal matters. It may be about ultimate matters. It may be about life and death. It may be about eternal life and eternal death. It may be about something else. It may be a problem with which you're dealing, and you don't know where to turn. The theistic worldview, in particularly the Christian worldview, says come to him and appeal to him and follow him. And that's my appeal to you this morning. It is like Joshua when he stood before the children of Israel before he died. And you remember what he said. He said, there are two roads. They are mutually exclusive. There is a one way that is right. There is one way that is wrong. And what did he say? Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We have a decision to make about life, eternal about ultimate matters, but also about everyday decisions that we make. To whom do we turn? And the answer that we will be unfolding in the next few weeks is is only one answer. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you give us certainty through your revelation, through your omniscience, through your omnipotence, through your omnipresence, through your spirit that you have given us, to bear witness to us that when we follow you, we are your children, that you walk with us and you guide us every step of the way through your Son, who is our shepherd and our guide. Our prayer this morning is that if there is someone who is standing at that crossroad, that they will not fall prey to the world today that says that every answer is just equally as good as another answer, for we know that that is the broad pathway that leads to death but we know that you have told us and encouraged us to seek the narrow path the path of your son Jesus Christ who died for my sin so that if I believe in him and I trust him he will cleanse me of all of my sin and unrighteousness and he will prepare a home for me with you in heaven and give me eternal life and our prayer is this morning that if there is someone standing at that crossroad, they will make the decision to follow him wherever he goes. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Wherever.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church sermon podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817 926 1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrill Street Baptist Church has six church goals, to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.